Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I'm so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide, and I'll find you. December 29th, 1977. While unloading groceries from the trunk of his car, Ambrose Griffin was killed in a drive-by shooting. It was a solidly middle-class residential district in Sacramento, California. There also appeared to be no motive behind the crime. To quote Detective Bill Roberts, this is a quiet neighborhood near Carmichael. Stuff like this doesn't happen here. It just doesn't make sense that a man was shot while unloading groceries from a car. We didn't even call this a drive-by shooting. The term was relatively new and almost exclusively used in talking about Los Angeles, not Sacramento. Ambrose Griffin was taken to hospital and treated, but the gunshot combined with high blood pressure was more than he could handle. He passed away at 9.25 p.m. Determining a motive would be tough. Ambrose Griffin didn't have a lot of enemies and generally stayed out of trouble. He kept his nose clean, as they say. Without a motive, connecting the dots to the killer's door would prove to be a daunting task. Shots had been ringing out in the same neighborhood for weeks. In some cases, it was merely what some firearm enthusiasts referred to as plinking, shooting their guns into the water. Aside from the inconvenience of creating a racket at night, it was otherwise harmless, but not all the shots could be so easily explained. Not so harmless were the shots that were fired into random houses. Bullets were found after the holes they made were discovered. One woman's life was spared through a miracle. 
A bullet was shot through her window and missed her skull by less than an inch when it zipped through her hair. The only evidence the police collected within 24 hours of the murder were the shells and casings the murderer left behind. Eventually, clues and evidence would pile up, but so would the corpses. Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950, in Sacramento, California. His conception was not a troubled one carried out as a burden out of wedlock. He was born nine and a half months after his parents were married. Though financial worries came and went in the Chase homestead, other, more serious problems emerged. Relations between his father, Richard Sr., and his mother, Beatrice, deteriorated. They had several heated arguments. Beatrice alleged that her husband used narcotics and committed adultery. On two occasions, she accused him of poisoning her. Richard Sr. conceded that he drank to excess from time to time. He also admitted that he was not adept at handling their finances. The charge of poisoning her he found strange and did not cop to. Richard Jr. appeared normal for the first eight years of his life. He was a Cub Scout. He played Little League. He was involved in other activities typical in the lives of children. He had the normal amount of friends for a boy his age. When he was in grade six, 50 children attended his birthday party. He showed no signs of mental illness and didn't appear to struggle with disconcerting impulses. Richard Sr. handled the discipline, while Beatrice was comparably more lenient. He lashed out with corporal punishment and was very strict. Sometimes he got carried away. When Richard Jr. was two years old, his father force-fed him until he vomited. Richard Sr. also shook Jr. and pitched him into the wall. He also did a lot of yelling. As the years crept by, marital relations between Richard's parents became even worse. Beatrice continued to accuse Richard Sr. of cheating on her. As she put it at the time, she accused him of, quote, having an affair with their neighbor, of having women in their yard, unquote. Her paranoia bordered on psychosis. In the middle of a family vacation to Oregon, she accused him of having sexual relations with a woman who awaited his presence in the forest. The vacation was ruined. They returned to Sacramento. She spoke of his performance in their marital suite, referring to him, quote, annoying her at night in bed. Claims she must have been drugged for him to be able to do this, unquote. 1965 was a significant turning point in the family's history. Beatrice moved to southern Los Angeles and took Junior with her. Richard Sr. drove down after eight days and brought Junior back with him. Beatrice remained in Los Angeles for four months, then returned home. They attempted one last time to secure their marital bond. Seven years later, in June of 1972, they admitted defeat and separated. The divorce was finalized on January 2nd, 1973. Years later, Beatrice Chase related to investigators some of the earliest manifestations of Richard's aberrant behavior. He was trying to cook for himself. He burnt pans and he would leave stuff all over it and big puddles on the floor. He never picked up or cleaned anything. Now he was up stewing around and cooking and burning stuff all night long, and it got to be vexing. 
We couldn't sleep. My daughter and I in the house. He'd turn the Pacific gas and electric on, and he'd turn it up so high, open the windows and let the heat out, and strip off all his clothes, lying on the couch in the living room. He also came to believe that he was one of the so-called younger brothers of Western. As Beatrice recalled, he checked a book out of the library, and he got a poster made, and he had his picture pasted in the picture for one of the younger brothers. Now, he later on had some big poster of a whole bunch of them, and was trying to sell them. He also wanted a cowboy hat and all that, and he wanted a red handkerchief, which I did not buy him a cowboy hat, but he wanted one. Richard Chase began high school in September 1964. At the onset, he appeared normal. He was well-groomed and socially connected enough to disqualify him from outcast status. As a freshman, he was a mediocre student with many C's and D's. In his sophomore year, his academic performance declined, and F's began to appear on his report cards. Typical for his age, his sex drive blossomed. He was unhappy about his lanky physique, but it wasn't a deal-breaker for the girls he dated. In 1965, a romantic relationship began between him and a girl named Libby Christopher, which is a pseudonym she used when giving interviews about him years later. They dated into 1966. An attempt at sex was made, but Chase experienced erectile dysfunction, so their coital pursuits never progressed beyond foreplay. Initially, Libby didn't let this deter her from continuing on with the relationship. However, it happened often enough that she broke up with him. The feelings of insecurity and inferiority he brought as his baggage into the relationship were exacerbated by this. He continued to date girls, but he experienced the same problems with potency with the other girls. Through their indiscretions, this failing became common knowledge among all those who knew him. He was humiliated. A turning point in Chase's development occurred at that time. He experimented with drugs. He smoked marijuana, dropped LSD, and occasionally took amphetamines. With his states having been altered, his disposition changed. Friends and family were displeased by the change in his behavior. He was rude. He was inconsiderate. He stopped taking care with his appearance and turned up in public disheveled. He grew his hair long. In 1965, he was arrested for the first time. He was arrested and charged with possession of marijuana. He and his father had heated arguments about his use of drugs, though he denied that he used them. His father was also frustrated when Richard began to neglect his hygiene. Junior also presented with a complete lack of ambition and aim. His father was deeply disappointed by what his son had become. These confrontations were not unheard of in 1960s America. A culture clash between the baby boomers and their parents bore a chasm into the foundation of the American family. On June 6, 1968, Richard Chase graduated from high school. His parents gave him a Volkswagen as a reward. In September that same year, he enrolled at American River College. In the spring of 1971, he took a leave of absence, as he put it. 
Higher education did nothing to rehabilitate his thinking. He visited a psychiatrist for the first time in his life in 1969. He sought the doctor's assistance with his erectile dysfunction. He was employed briefly in 1969 with Retailers Credit Association. His duties included typing and working the phones. According to Beatrice Chase, he did a very good job. He did other menial work. He could never hold a job for long. The deterioration of his mental health and the drugs he took undermined his ability to make a long-term commitment to a career. Chase moved into a house with three roommates. They met him as he sat on the front lawn one day in February 1971. They got to talking. He appeared normal, so they invited him to share the house. If they had known in advance how he would behave in the house, they would never have asked him to stay. He paid $50 for rent. He eked his way through life by working odd jobs. He was always stoned. He was also remembered for being uncooperative, inconsiderate, and generally difficult to have around. It got worse. Having become deeply paranoid, he boarded up the door of his room. He knocked a hole into his closet's wall and used the hole as an entrance and an exit. He made his room into a virtual fortress. The reason he gave for doing this? He was quoted as saying it was so that, quote, no one can sneak up on me, unquote. One day, Chase leaned out of his window and waved a gun at a person who was walking toward the house. This was the last straw. His roommates asked him to leave. He refused to leave, so they moved out. Others moved in after they left, and they too encountered problems with Richard Chase. They were in a rock band. Chase wasn't content to remain a spectator. He sat in with the band when they practiced. He played a conga drum and sang. As they told investigators years later, he was, quote, no good. They tried to talk him out of jamming with them. He would argue with them and join in anyway. This was a constant source of friction, as was his other behavior, which was consistently bizarre. He was high all the time. He would walk out of his bedroom in the nude while his male roommates had their girlfriends over. His conduct became harder and harder to tolerate. He was finally kicked out. He moved back in with his mother. His odd behavior by no means disappeared under his mother's roof. As if this wasn't stressful enough, she also had to support him financially. She struggled as his regular traffic violations left a trail of unpaid tickets. After accumulating 15 tickets, he lost his license. He bought a motorcycle. In 1972, Chase took a trip to Utah. He was arrested for a traffic violation during the two-week trip. His car was impounded and his two dogs were placed in a shelter. During that time, he alleged that the arresting officers, quote, gassed him, leading to a serious illness. He wanted to sue the police. His father dissuaded him from doing this. Irresponsible driving was not the most distressing behavior from his mother's point of view. She recalls the conversation they had about his run-in with Utah law enforcement. He, quote, acted crazy, acted completely berserk. And I said, what happened? And he said, I think they gave me something in jail or asphyxiated me some way. He'd have fits. 
He beat his feet into the wall, and it was just awful. She also reported that having a conversation with him at that time was exceedingly difficult. She said his thinking was so disordered, he even had trouble signing his name. Mother and son fought regularly. Sometimes the fights became physical. On one such occasion, his mother was about to call the police before Richard grabbed the receiver from her hand and clouded her in the head with it. She still managed to call the police. Richard ran out of the house, jumped a fence, and disappeared. When the police arrived, they told Beatrice they would only arrest him if she decided to press charges. She didn't wish to pursue this action. Instead, she called the Aquarian Effort. It was an organization that treated people who suffer from mental illness and addiction. She also decided that he could benefit from a trip to visit relatives in Southern California. Richard Chase moved to the home of his grandmother, Holly Niece, in Los Angeles. He worked for his uncle, driving a bus for what he referred to as, quote, retarded children. This did not go well. He refused to clean the bus. He would allow the oil to run low. He was not liable for these expenses. His employer paid for it. This argument wasn't good enough for Richard Chase. His grandmother was asked years later about Chase's behavior during the time he lived with her. Was there anything strange or abnormal about his conduct under her roof? She indicated that he was very different than he was the last time she visited him in Sacramento. She said that after he was fired from the bus driving job, his routine changed markedly. He stayed in bed for most of the day. He roamed the house at night. He returned to Sacramento for Christmas of 1972. His parents' divorce was about to be finalized, and the wounds incurred from this turn of events had not yet healed. His strange behavior also did not add any cheer to the festivities. It got worse in 1973. At a party on April 22nd, he grabbed a girl's breasts. He was forced to leave. He returned soon after. He forced his way back into the party. Some of the males present attempted to force him back out. Suddenly a handgun fell from his belt. He remained at the party as the police were called. He resisted arrest and was forcibly restrained by the officers. He was taken to jail. As with his previous encounter with police, the following day he groused about his injuries, which he considered to be serious. He wanted to sue the police. Once again, his father talked him out of it. He returned to Los Angeles and moved in with his grandmother once again. She wasn't exactly thrilled about it, but she allowed him to live there. This time around, his mental and physical presentation was even worse than before, much to his grandmother's dismay. To quote Holly Niece, the second time he was down here, he was terribly dirty. He came out of his bedroom and used my couch in the living room, and he had breadcrumbs, and everything just dripped over the couch and all over the floor, and he had papers, newspapers. He'd get newspapers, and I don't know what he wanted to do with them, but he'd have them pulled all apart all over the house. He made a lot of noise at night, much to her chagrin, as she recalls. I would wake up at night, and he'd be pounding on things. He was building a speaker for his car, and he blew the whole side of my electricity out, and half in the living room and in the bathroom. His behavior got even stranger. She would hear him talking to himself. He would say things like, Richard, you're a good boy, aren't you? Yes, you're a good boy. She heard him say that four or five times. 
He didn't talk much while he lived with his grandmother. He was as paranoid as ever. He became convinced that someone was trying to enter her house through a window. Holly caught him standing on his head in the corner of his room one day. His explanation, he was trying to reroute his blood so that it would run back down to his head. He had other health complaints. He complained of a pain in his heart and in his legs. He took to wrapping his head with a towel. This wouldn't have been so strange if it hadn't been for the fact that he filled the towel with orange slices. She had no explanation for that one. He tried working at a paint store, but that came to a dismal end after only 10 days. From the money he earned from his 10 days of employment, he bought a handgun. With his disordered mind, the last thing he needed was an instrument of death, and she knew this. She became very unsettled by this turn of events, and she had already watched his sanity unravel, a process that was discomforting at every turn. She couldn't deal with the stress of having Richard on the premises anymore. Once again, he was returned to Sacramento. His family had experienced some relief while he was gone, content to resume their normal ways of living. That tranquility was turfed out upon Richard's arrival. Sparing his mother the burden of having him around 24-7, he spent half his time at his father's duplex. Neighbors would tell investigators years later that they observed him standing in the driveway, staring blankly at the house. His father wouldn't accept the notion that Richard's behavior had its basis in untreated mental illness. He believed that it stemmed from misguided values and attitudes. He believed that these were imparted to his son from his mother. The medication prescribed by Richard Sr. as treatment for his behavior was issued in the form of statements like, get a job, shape up, and function normally. This approach was not effective. Most of their conversations devolved into disagreements and shouting matches. Beatrice interacted with Richard more than his father did. This brought its own host of issues and difficulties to bear. She described to investigators years later the many ways in which his mental illness continued to manifest. He became obsessed with the condition of his body. To quote Beatrice, his head was hurting and his head was changing shape. He thought there was something wrong with his nervous system. He thought he was numb and that his heart was stopping and he had something wrong with his blood circulation and he also had a fear of dying. She also said he believed, quote, bones were coming out the back of his head, unquote. During this degenerative phase, he took to cutting pictures of internal organs out of his copy of Grey's Anatomy. He would tape them to his bedroom wall. He was obsessed with understanding what was happening to him medically, but apparently it didn't occur to him to see a doctor for a physical. One day when the doorbell rang, Beatrice opened the door and found firefighters standing on her doorstep. Richard called them. As Beatrice remembered it, he said he was, quote, a heart patient and he wanted them to come out and get him. And they came out knocking at the door and they brought a stretcher. And they said, where is the stretcher case? And Richard came forward and said, well, here I am. His hypochondriacal anxiety got worse until he approached Beatrice about the issue. He was nearly reduced to begging her for help. To quote Beatrice, later on, Richard came up to me and he said, Mom, aren't you going to help me? I'm sick. I want to start tests and everything. She contacted some doctors. He was unhappy with the first two he saw. 
the third doctor, Donald Ansel, found that the problem was not physical. Dr. Ansel's diagnosis was that Chase, quote, had a psychiatric disturbance of major proportion. The diagnosis did nothing to alleviate Chase's disquietude. On December 1st, 1973, he approached the emergency triage at American River Hospital. He told them he couldn't breathe and that he'd lost his pulmonary vein. He was convinced he was experiencing cardiac arrest. His explanation regarding the pulmonary artery was that someone had stolen it. He also told them his circulation stopped. A Dr. Irwin wrote about Chase's disposition in his report, saying he was, quote, tense, nervous, and wild-eyed. He went on to describe him as, quote, a filthy, disheveled, deteriorated, and foul-smelling white male, unquote. Dr. Irwin diagnosed Richard Chase with acute chronic paranoid schizophrenia and had the possibility of a toxic psychosis consequent to ingestion of psychotomimetic drugs cannot be ruled out. The staff of American River Hospital dealt with Chase for two days. He was discharged after a confrontation with his mother. She came to see him and relations between mother and son became hostile. One Dr. Lyons described Beatrice Chase's temperament as, quote, highly aggressive, hostile, provocative, unquote. He labeled her the, quote, so-called schizophrenic mother, unquote. At the time Richard was discharged, the final diagnosis was chronic paranoid schizophrenia. Richard's post-discharge behavior demonstrated an improvement in his mental health and behavior. He was prescribed medication and took it as directed. His condition was now manageable. He was outfitted with an oxygen tank, possibly to manage panic attacks. After years with a gangly physique, he gained 20 pounds. He was exercising regularly. Beatrice estimated that this phase lasted approximately two years. His father disagreed with this assessment. Right or wrong either way, the condition of Junior's mental health would decline once again. This is because Richard resumed his consumption of narcotics. Though it was not proven that this was a catalytic factor, no one would have argued that after the preceding period of improvement, he once again became the man who perplexed and worried them with this bizarre and destructive behavior. Beatrice joined Holly as part of the contingent who would overhear Richard talking to himself. He would engage in conversations with unseen presences. One day she heard him say, oh shut up. She assumed he was talking to her. She said, what are you? You stop talking to me like that. He said, I'm not talking to you. This type of exchange happened two or three times. Sometimes while she spoke with him, he would say, I'm not going to do it. Assuming this was directed at her, she would say, well, now you're going to do it. He would respond by saying, well, I wasn't talking to you. Like at Holly's house, he would fill a towel with orange slices and wrap it around his head. He did this at least 12 times. All methods he employed to relieve himself of anxiety failed. He developed more and more paranoid delusions. As these accumulated, so too did the accusations he directed at his mother. They became increasingly bizarre. It came to a head when he commanded his mother to stop controlling his mind. He issued this directive on two occasions. He once accused his sister, Pam, of doing the same. As the delusions appeared and preoccupied him, his frustration grew in tandem. 
Living with him became a travail. Beatrice stood by helplessly as he broke windows, knocked doors off their hinges, and kicked holes in the walls. Sometimes she called his father to see if he could rectify the situation. This only contributed to Richard's agitation. One day Richard went on a rampage throughout the house, tearing the place apart. Beatrice and Pam fled from the house. Suddenly the outside world offered a solace. His father was contacted. He called and tried to talk his son down. Not only did this not work, but Junior tore the phone and its jack from the wall. Another time when his father tried to defuse one of these outbursts, he met with his son on the front lawn, and they had a fist fight. Junior slapped his mother in the face once. He struck her so hard he knocked her to the floor. Speaking with his father on the phone was enough to provoke another rampage, with him destroying everything in his path. Beatrice blamed her ex-husband for these incidents. She believed he was ordering Richard to do it. In 1976, Richard's behavior was still destructive and bizarre, but now a streak of sadism emerged. To quote Beatrice, At this time, my son would actually hurt my dog's foot. He would grab that foot and cut it with his knife. He would also squeeze the dog's paws. He would squeeze its jaw so hard he would nearly break it. The dog was in so much pain afterwards it would not be able to eat for a while. This was hard for Beatrice to tolerate and his rage showed no signs of abating. She ordered him to leave. With assistance from his father, he moved into an apartment of his own. To be more precise, it was a small house behind a larger one, like a pool house. For a time, he kept the place clean. He used a bicycle as a means of transportation. He lived off social assistance, relieving his family of the financial burden they took on while he lived with them. They were also relieved that they no longer became victims and witnesses of his abnormal behavior. He purchased rabbits and began his practice of drinking their blood. When his father visited, he asked about the rabbits he kept at the time. His son told him he was going to eat them. It was a strange response, but his father came to expect nothing less from him at that point. On the evening of April 25, 1976, his father visited, played chess with him, and left. Later that evening, or perhaps the next day, Richard injected rabbit blood into his vein. Whatever benefit he expected to derive from this practice failed to take effect. He became violently ill and began to vomit. When his father visited him the next day, he was ailing to the point where he could barely move. His father took him to his car and drove him to Community Hospital in North Sacramento. He was admitted upon arrival. This is transcribed verbatim from the report made by the attendant physicians. States he has been poisoned by a rabbit he ate. Gives a bizarre history of eating a rabbit which had battery acid in its stomach. Diagnosis, schizophrenia, paranoid type. He stated that Chase was well-oriented. A 72-hour hold was placed on Richard. Chase was transferred to American River Hospital on the 28th. He remained there until May 19th. The following is from Dr. Frank Harper's observations. Approximately three days ago, drank some blood and attempted to inject rabbit blood into his system. States he needs to drink blood because his heart is weak. Dr. Harper also said Chase was, quote, hostile, 
but oriented to time, place, and person. Chase complained of, quote, heart weakness and said his body was falling apart. He refused to exercise or participate in group therapy. Staff noted he was, quote, almost nonverbal. When he was discharged, Dr. Michael Buckley's prognosis was not optimistic. He wrote the following in his report. Uncooperative with treatment throughout the course of his hospitalization. Final diagnosis, schizophrenia, paranoid type. Richard was transferred to Beverly Manor for extended care, though he wasn't interested. He was visibly nervous upon arrival. He stated that food poisoning was the reason he sought treatment. Though at the outset the staff encountered an individual who was withdrawn, reclusive, and uncooperative, improvements began to emerge. He began to participate in the institution's programs and activities. He even mingled with patients and staff. Nevertheless, his patience with being held there had its limits. He was still convinced that the food poisoning was the only source of his problems. He would have made good use of their objective appraisal of his psychiatric condition. He had become preoccupied with drinking blood. It escalated into an obsession. A member of the staff entered the following statement into a report dated June 20th, 1976. Suspected. Has been killing and maiming animals. Two dead birds. Found outside his room with their heads broken off last Wednesday. The housekeeper saw Chase outside his room, but could not see what he was doing. When he came in, he had blood all over him. His father asked him about this behavior. Junior lied, telling him that he cut himself shaving. An orderly found a dead bird in his wastebasket. On another occasion, Chase was found in some bushes. He was bedecked with feathers. There was blood all over his face. Neither his thirst for blood nor the belief that he needed to drink it to stay alive showed any signs of abatement. He did show some improvement in other areas. He played basketball regularly, socialized with staff, and attended group therapy. Doctors were cautiously optimistic about his potential for recovery. Dr. Buckley wrote the following in his report on September 29, 1976. Thinking much clearer as compared to the time of admission, will discharge to be under care of parents and follow-up physician. Thought disorder improved. Prognosis, fair. Will continue on same medications. Diagnosis, paranoid schizophrenia. Restorative potential, guarded. Soon after this information was logged, Richard Chase was released back into the world. Though Chase's malicious treatment of animals was disconcerting, he didn't present any danger to humans. Given this, doctors decided that though it might be risky, he was capable of mixing with the general population. His parents became his conservators. He was not capable of living independently. His illness inhibited his ability to procure employment. They were not willing to open their homes up to him again, however, so they set him up in an apartment. In his own home, he was more highly functional. He took his medication and was easier to deal with. One thing that did concern Beatrice was the side effects of the medication. He moved around all day in a stupor, reminiscent of a zombie. Without consulting any of his physicians, she took him off the medication. 
This is a statement transcribed from his case file. Mrs. Chase took it upon herself to wean defendant off all his medications, and by January 1977, he was no longer taking any drugs. Not only was he no longer taking his medication, but outpatient care was canceled. He didn't even see a psychiatrist regularly, which had been strongly recommended. Psychologically, Richard Chase was in free fall. He slept during the day. He roamed the streets at night. He frequented the Country Club Lanes bowling alley. It was there where he met other young people. Occasionally, he let some of them stay with him in his apartment. He sublet his apartment for a while. The problem was, when he wanted them to leave, they wouldn't. Eventually, his father came by and forced them to leave. For a time, father and son went bowling together on Sundays. After he went off his psychiatric medication, he began to use illegal drugs. His paranoia grew once again. Beatrice handled his social security payments. She also paid his rent. His father asked him why he was receiving social security benefits. His son told him he was, quote, incapacitated to work. Richard started to levy accusations against his mother and sister, claiming that they were poisoning him. Beatrice brought him groceries. Initially, she was one of the few people he let inside his apartment, the upkeep of which he had neglected, and it was filthy. Before long, he refused to let his mother inside. His father also brought him groceries, and he, too, was banned from the premises. His son was getting worse. At some point in late 1976 or early 1977, Chase shaved his head bald. He walked into his doctor's office and talked to the nurse. He reported that he was fatigued. He hadn't been sleeping well. He wanted blood. He couldn't see the doctor without an appointment. He didn't receive the blood he was looking for, so he left. According to the nurse, he would frequently show up to the clinic unannounced, and if the waiting room was full, he would leave without speaking to anyone. He entered yet another degenerative phase. His mental condition spiraled out of control. He continued to prey on small birds and animals to satisfy his thirst for blood. Eventually, he progressed to larger animals. He was making his way up the food chain. In summer, Richard notified his parents he planned to, quote, go back east. He wanted to move out of his apartment as well. Beatrice attempted to dissuade him from this course of action, but he wouldn't budge from that decision. She helped him clean his apartment. She gave him $1,500 of the social security she saved for him. His father drove him to the bus station. He bought a ticket to Washington, D.C. He returned two weeks later in a vehicle he bought. He moved into a new apartment on July 3, 1977. Linda Dillon was one of his neighbors at his new address. She remembers him as being very strange. She would see him walking around the building with his mouth hanging open. Other times he dragged one foot as he walked. She said hello to him a few times when she passed him in the hallway. He didn't respond. Despite this lack of interest on his part, he entered her apartment uninvited one day. He left when he saw that other people were there. He became more and more brazen in his approach. One day, he cornered her in the parking lot. He asked her for a cigarette. She gave him one. He demanded more. She gave him the rest of the pack. She said he had a blank look on his face. 
One day she observed him carrying two dogs and a cat into his apartment. She never saw the animals again. She saw him carrying boxes to and from his apartment on a regular basis. Other tenants saw him carrying a shotgun around the building and they found it unsettling. The manager of the building asked him to wrap the shotgun in a blanket if he wanted to carry it on the building's property. Chase agreed and concealed the weapon. At this time, Richard's family owned two dogs. He killed them both. His father confronted him about it. He denied it. Both his parents knew he was lying. Considering his past behavior, there was no one else to point to. He later told his mother that the dogs were his property and said, I had a right to do what I wanted to. He and Beatrice had a very heated disagreement about the issue. One day in the afternoon, she heard someone knock at her front door. Assuming it was Richard, she didn't answer. She was giving him the silent treatment. Some time passed. All of a sudden, she heard a loud bang. She opened the door. Richard stood there before her, holding her cat. It was dead. It hung from his hand by its tail. The gunshot splattered blood and tissue all over her front porch. She stared at him, astonished. He wiped the cat's blood on the back of his neck. When she told his father what he had done, she left out the detail about him putting the blood on the back of his neck. August 3, 1977. Richard Chase was sunbathing along a rocky stretch of Pyramid Lake, Nevada. He was completely nude and covered in blood. He was totally relaxed, at peace. His car was parked half a mile away. In the car, he kept two rifles. They were both bedecked with blood. The car's fabric interior was a tapestry of bloodstains. There was a white bucket inside. It was filled with blood. A liver marinated in the blood. In the early morning hours of that day, Chase's car got stuck in the sand. A man named Carmen Toby watched him leave the ranchero with a dog. He said he was headed toward an area known as the Pinnacles. Toby called the authorities. This incident occurred on a Native American reservation. Citing a report made by reservation officials, Bureau of Indian Affairs officers Charles O'Brien, Manuel Sabori, and Leland Johnson were dispatched to the scene. Tribal officers Leroy Phoenix and Edward Crutcher joined them there. The following was transcribed from Officer O'Brien's report. At this time, I started to scan the area with field glasses, and as I looked to the south, I saw a white male subject squatting in the sand, watching us. He was approximately one-half to three-quarters of a mile away from us. He was completely nude. Officers Johnson and Sabori started after him on foot. Subject then started running towards the lake with officers in foot pursuit. Tribal officers Phoenix and Crutcher started out to head subject off. The officers were equipped with four-wheel drive vehicle. Chase was taken into custody within minutes. When they asked him his correct name, age, and address, he offered the information voluntarily. When they asked him about the blood on his body and in his car, he came across like he was confused. He was evasive. Officer O'Brien gives his account of Chase's answer to those questions. I asked Mr. Chase where all the blood on his face came from. He told me that the blood was seeping from his skin. I asked some further questions, which he would not answer. 
I then asked him again about the blood on his face and body. He told me then that he had shot a deer. I asked him where and when, and he told me in Colorado in May. The dog they saw him with was missing. The officers asked Chase about it, but he said he knew nothing of its whereabouts. They noticed he was wearing a knife sheath. The knife was missing. After a struggle, he was placed under arrest. He was detained while the blood and liver in the bucket were tested. To quote Officer O'Brien, we arrived at the ranger station. I placed a call to the U.S. attorney in Reno and informed him of the situation. I was told by U.S. Deputy Attorney Ray Pike to place him under arrest for violation of USC 18 section 922 G&H. Mr. Chase was then placed under arrest and given his Miranda warning and then transported and booked into the Washoe County Jail. After a few hours, the results from the lab were in. The blood and liver had come from an animal. Chase was released. There was another problem, though, an issue with the registration of his car. He called his mother. He lied to her, saying that the problem was a mix-up involving rabbit hunting. He had gotten rabbit blood all over him and was arrested due to a misunderstanding. His father drove to the station in Nevada, and his son gave him the same story. Despite his mental and psychological disorders, he was still able to ponder, plan, and deceive. In fall of 1977, Chase's desire to drink the blood of animals intensified. He was regularly obtaining dogs to satisfy this urge. The following is a sample from his case file regarding his purchase of dogs from the SPCA. On October 1st, 1977, Chase bought a dog from the SPCA for $15.90. On October 10th, 1977, he bought another dog from the SPCA for the same price. During that same period, Chase went to the home of Elaine Meyer to buy a dog. The price she advertised was $25. Chase tried to talk her down to $23. She wouldn't budge. He groused about paying the extra $2. Meyer was asked by investigators about this encounter. She said Chase acted normal, but the dog didn't want to go with him. In November, he responded to an ad for Labrador Retriever puppies. They were $10 each. The seller, Daniel Owens, returned to his home at 4 p.m. and saw Chase standing at his backyard fence, staring. Chase introduced himself, claiming to be a breeder. He asked if he could get a two-for-one deal. Owens agreed. Chase took two of the puppies. The same month, Chase grabbed a dog that belonged to the Sunseth family. They lived close to Chase's apartment building. He wasn't content merely to slaughter and mutilate the dog. When the sun sets, placed an ad in the newspaper in hopes that the dog would be returned, Chase called their number to taunt them. He knew details about the dog that only someone who had interacted with it could have known. Their daughter was so unsettled she gave the phone to her father. When her father spoke, Chase hung up immediately. They said he sounded marginally incoherent and may have been high on drugs. He tried to steal St. Bernard from the Hoey family, but aborted when their neighbor caught him. He tried again, but Joanne Hoey had just pulled away from the house in her car when she observed Chase walking up her driveway. She drove back to the house and asked him what he wanted. He said nothing and left. The Hoey family's dog was spared. 
At a later date, he confessed to hanging the dogs he brought to his apartment. Once they were dead, he would drink their blood. He would also eat their flesh, or as he put it, eating dog viscera, raw. On December 2, 1977, Richard Chase went to Big Five Sporting Goods and bought a pistol. There was a two-week waiting period for the purpose of screening. He was asked if he was, quote, a mental patient or on leave of absence from any mental hospital, or has he been adjudicated by a court to be a danger to others as a result of a mental disorder or mental illness? He said no to all of the above. He asked his mother to buy him a holster. She declined the request. His neighbor, Linda Dillon, recalled that she heard gunshots outside of Chase's apartment on at least two occasions. This was confirmed by Chase when he was questioned. He said he was shooting at voices heard in apartment. This claim was verified when the bullet holes were found in his apartment. Around the 16th of December, it must have appeared to his parents and others that he was getting his act together. He cut his hair and trimmed his beard. He said he was going to get a job. Two days later, he picked up the gun. He also purchased a box of ammunition. The box contained 50 rounds. On the 22nd and 23rd of December, he bought copies of the Sacramento Bee newspaper. He saved pages from the out and about section. There was an article about singles and dating he kept. He also saved ads placed by people who were offering free dogs. Some of them were circled. He told his mother he wanted a coat. His father bought him a parka. Though his son did his best to appear normal that day, he was also anxious to leave. His father later told investigators that his son didn't do or say anything strange at that time. As Richard Chase Jr. planned for his career in homicide, his physical appearance and demeanor improved. He hadn't changed internally, but he became easier to be around. His parents noticed this, as did his grandmother. He was not permitted to spend the Christmas holidays with his family because of the killing of a cat and other offenses. He all but begged Beatrice to include him, but she didn't trust him. In an interview with the assistant district attorney, Richard's grandmother, Holly Neese, commented on Christmas of 1977. In the last year, she would not allow Rick in the place at all. Every time he would knock on the door, she would run him off. I don't think this was right at all, but she said she wouldn't let him come down to Christmas dinner, and he was very upset about it. Beatrice spoke in her defense. I have an explanation for that. I felt awful about not inviting him down at Christmas, but I did invite him to go out with me. I took all his gifts and lots of good things up there for him to his apartment, but it wasn't like being with the people that he wanted and loved. I don't know, I hope that he loves. Anyway, my daughter is deathly afraid of him after the cat episode, and after the dog episode, she said, Mom, I don't want him around anymore. Niece commented on this. He just called and called and wanted to come down at Christmas. Beatrice and Holly paid a visit to Richard's apartment during the season. They gave him some presents. He was surprised by them. All of these for me, he said. They returned later to take him out to dinner. When they did, he was looking and behaving normal. He was attired in new clothes and looking presentable. On December 26th, Richard bought another box of ammunition. About a day later, he fired it at the Ferris residence. By the time the 29th rolled around, he would murder Ambrose Griffin. 
On January 5th, Chase bought a copy of the Sacramento Bee and kept an editorial about the Griffin murder as a trophy. On January 6th, he bought the same paper and highlighted an article about a knife murder. Though he was consumed with a bloodlust for homicide, a burning desire to commit arson emerged in him as well. On January 16th, he started a fire in a garage. He lit some newspapers on fire and left them on a shelf. They were discovered and the flames were extinguished before any damage could be done. His motive for lighting the fire, he believed his neighbors were spying on him. The fire, he reasoned, would drive them away. He knocked on the door of that residence to ensure that no one died. One day Richard Chase was talking to his mother. At some point, he told her he wanted to go rock hunting. On January 21st, his father picked him up and they went hiking and rock hunting together. According to his father, he didn't demonstrate any bizarre behavior that day. He didn't say anything out of the ordinary. He didn't complain about his health. There were no arguments. His father invested in this effort to fix their relationship and it appeared to be working. They were getting along well. What his father didn't know at the time was that his son had become very adept at hiding his dark side. Just over 12 hours later, estimated to be around 1 a.m. on the 22nd, he broke a window at 3040 Watt Avenue, home of the Nelson family. He entered through the window and lit their drapes on fire. As with the other fire he started, he checked to see if anybody was home, or at least that's what he told investigators. The fire spread to a speaker cabinet and a carpet, but the fire department arrived and extinguished the flames before more damage could be incurred. In the early evening hours of the 22nd, he visited his mother's house, even though he was not welcome there. He was allowed in this time. His grandmother was still visiting. From what they could tell, he was looking good and living a good life, all things considered. Holly gave him $10 before he left, having been so pleased with his progress. As he left, he asked her about her dog and how it was faring. She didn't know what he was doing to dogs in his spare time, so this line of questioning didn't elicit ruffled feathers. Richard Chase woke up a changed man on January 23, 1978. He had already committed murder, but the killing of Ambrose Griffin was heartless and sociopathic, almost as if it were a trial run or an experiment. He was testing his gun and his ability to kill in cold blood. Now his desire to kill human beings took a nefarious turn. His killer instincts were now infused with a sinister urge to visit pain and suffering upon his victims and their loved ones in the most diabolical ways imaginable. He left his apartment on foot, walking to Bernice Street. He had his semi-automatic pistol with him. He wore a pair of rubber gloves. His destination was 2909 Bernice Street. When he arrived sometime between 9 and 10 a.m., there was no car in the driveway. He went around the back and tried to force the door open. The current occupant, Jeannie Layton, was watching television when she heard a noise. It was in the back of the house. She investigated and found Richard Chase on her back porch. He saw her through a window and shouted, Excuse me! Ms. Layton called the police immediately. Chase sat on her porch for the next few minutes. He considered killing her and how he might be able to enter the house. He thought better of it and left. 
After leaving the Leighton house, he walked northbound on Bernice. Though he was aware the police were likely to drive down that street, having read a description of him, he was not deterred from carrying out his objective. 2929 Bernice Street was the home of the Edwards family. This house was empty at the time. He entered through a rear window. Once he was inside the house, he riffled through drawers and boxes. After a few minutes of this, he stole $16 and filled a bag with some of their valuables. Unlike most burglars who leave as soon as they obtain their bounty, he took a time out. He used this time to urinate in a drawer that was filled with clothing. He defecated on a child's bed. The owners returned before he was finished, and he left out the same rear window he entered from. He jumped a fence. Mr. Edwards saw him and pursued him on foot. They ran through the neighborhood. Edwards demanded he stop. At one point, Chase yelled back, I'm only taking a shortcut. Chase managed to lose Edwards. This was only temporary. Edwards ran back home, got in his car, and pursued Chase on the street. He saw him on Watt Avenue, but Chase lost him again. Chase made it home. He was there long enough to change his jacket. He soon left. He had other plans for that day. At 11.45 a.m., Chase walked to the parking lot of the pantry market. He was very dirty and unkempt. Some kind of crusty yellow substance was present around his mouth. He struck all who came into contact with him as being abnormal. At the pantry market, he ran into an old friend from high school, Nancy Westfall, after she parked and entered the store. As she started shopping, she heard a man's voice calling her name. She turned around and the man said, weren't you on Kurt's motorcycle when he was killed? She said no. She asked him who he was. He said his name was Rick. She recognized him now. You're Rick Chase. He said, you're Nancy Westfall. He nodded and turned away. Though he was so quick to end the conversation, he came back soon after and continued. Nancy recalls the nature of the conversation. I came down the aisle and I could see I wasn't going to avoid him. So I walked up and said, what have you been up to, Rick? And he said, where are you going? And I gestured toward the cash register and he said, to the bank? I said, yes. And he said, what, do you have to write a check or something? And I said, no, I do it for work. She was weirded out both by his demeanor and by his dirty and disheveled appearance. As she paid for her items, he stood close behind her with a soft drink. Once she was finished paying, she rushed to the door, keen to get away from Chase. As she made her way to the parking lot with haste, Chase called out, hey, wait, hey, wait. She had no intention of waiting. As she backed out of the parking space, he caught up with her. He tried grabbing the passenger door's handle, but missed. She sped out of the lot, terrified. As she made her way down the street, she looked in the rearview mirror and observed Chase standing by the road, watching her drive away. After a second or two, he turned and left. On the morning of January 23, 1978, 22-year-old Teresa Wallen left from the back door of the house she shared with her husband. She was three months pregnant. She did some shopping at the pantry market. While driving back home, Richard Chase watched her and walked toward Tioga Way, the street upon which her house was located. He walked across people's porches as if they were public property. Teresa Wallen had the day off work. 
She was cleaning the house. She left the door unlocked. The door burst open. Richard Chase entered her house. He drew his pistol and aimed it at her. She was startled and held her right arm up as her only barrier to cranial injury. He shot her. The bullet passed through her hand near her wrist. It grazed her head. He shot her again. The bullet blasted through her cheek and fractured her jaw. Chase shot her again. This bullet drove a path through her brain. She was rendered unconscious upon impact and soon perished. Before Teresa Wallen died, Richard Chase put on a pair of rubber gloves. He dragged her to a bedroom and back. He left her on the floor. He pulled her sweater and brassiere above her breasts. He pulled her pants and underwear down to her ankles. He grabbed her left leg and positioned it to the right. He bent it to expose her vagina. He went to the kitchen and brought back a knife. He mutilated her with this weapon. This description of this phase of the murder was transcribed from court records. Richard Chase attacked specific organs, pancreas cut in half, spleen completely cut out of body, stomach cut, liver cut, part of large and small intestines pulled out of the way and connecting tissue damaged, but no incidental cutting of intestine. Membrane between intestines and kidney penetrated. No way to get to kidneys through abdomen from front without doing this. Both kidneys cut out of their proper positions. One nearly cut in half. Diaphragm had hole in it. One kidney found in chest. Portion of lower left lung completely sawed off. Stabs into heart. Opinion of pathologist. This was not random. Some of this was done before she was dead. While Chase cut up her body, he filled an emptied yogurt cup with her blood. He drank the blood from the cup. Ringlets of blood were found at the scene, assumed to have been made by a bucket. He also stabbed her through her left breast. According to court records, he stabbed it once superficially, once through the nipple, and on through to the lung thrusting the knife three times through the wound. Next, he placed some dried dog feces he'd found in the backyard inside her mouth. Once he finished with Teresa Wallen's body, he went to the bathroom to clean up. He wiped the knife off with a scarf. He washed it off in the kitchen sink and hid it underneath other dishes. He left the house shortly thereafter. He was so unfazed by what he had done that when he went home, he watched television and waited for the newspaper to be delivered, as if it were an ordinary day at the office. When Teresa Wallen's husband, David, returned home, he knew before finding his wife's body that something was wrong. He called her name, but there was no response. She was supposed to be home at that time. His dog was acting strangely. There was garbage strewn about the living room. He saw what appeared to him to be oil patches in the carpet. These spots led to the master bedroom. When he entered the room, he was mortified to find his wife lifeless and mutilated. As he described the scene to investigators, he saw, quote, 
a large wound in her stomach, her tongue hanging out, and her eyes open. The nipple on her left breast had been cut off. He could only look at her corpse for a second before fleeing from the room in horror. The trauma was overwhelming for David Wallen. He began to scream. He was at a loss for what to do. He called his father's residence. His brother John answered the phone. David couldn't recall what he said to his brother, but his father got on the phone and promised his son he would be right over. While his father was en route, David ran out of his house and went to the home of his next door neighbor. He said to them, my wife is dead. His neighbors comforted him. They called the sheriff's office. After a few minutes, he walked outside to see if his parents had arrived. They hadn't, so he went back into his neighbor's house. The next time he went back out, their car was in the driveway, but they weren't. He ran into the house in hopes that they wouldn't have seen Teresa's body. It was too late. When the police arrived, there were several people congregated in the living room. When the officers walked to the porch, David said to them, You've got a murder on your hands, boys. My wife's in the bedroom. She's been murdered. Officer Flanagan waited on the porch with the Wallens. Patrolman Savage inspected Teresa's body. What he saw gave him nightmares for a long time. Though he could tell she was dead as soon as he laid eyes on her, he had to observe protocol. He checked her carotid artery for a pulse. She had none. He shone a light into her eyes. Her pupils were unresponsive. After this, Savage joined the Wallens, and Flanagan had a look for himself. He checked for signs of life and came up short. Detectives from Homicide were contacted and dispatched to the scene. A coroner was also sent. A mob of police descended on the house to collect evidence and interview witnesses. The lead investigator, Lieutenant Ray Biondi, was heard to remark, We need to hurry up and catch the sick son of a bitch who did this. On January 26th, David Wallen was ruled out as a suspect. His story held up during heavy scrutiny. The day after he killed Teresa Wallen, Richard Chase bought a copy of the Sacramento Bee. He kept the issue. He enjoyed reading about his handiwork. He kept all articles pertaining to his killing spree. That very day, he already started canvassing neighborhoods close to where he lived in search of more victims. His cover story was that he was searching for old magazines. His behavior was strange as ever, and it never went unnoticed. His thirst for blood became harder and harder to slake. He approached many houses asking about old magazines and was routinely turned away. Meanwhile, the police questioned all the people who had encounters with Richard Chase. Though there were other homicide cases unsolved, the perpetrator of Teresa Wallen's murder was considered such a threat to the general populace that the police knew he represented a level of danger that was unprecedented. To quote Lieutenant Ray Biondi once again, Never in the history of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department had anyone reported a scene like that on Tioga Way. Richard Chase continued to canvass the neighborhoods adjacent to his own, asking homeowners for old magazines. His behavior was viewed as odd and suspicious, especially when he lingered at a house after his appeal for magazines was denied. January 27, 1978. 3207 Marywood Drive was home to Evelyn Myroth and her two sons, Vernon and Jason. 
She was a divorcee, but had a steady boyfriend. He didn't live with Evelyn. Evelyn was unemployed, but she did babysit 22-month-old nephew David Ferreira. David was dropped off at about 7 a.m. At some point that morning, Evelyn mowed her lawn. She left the garage door open. Her friend Daniel Meredith visited her that morning. There was no sign of forced entry, so it's likely that Richard Chase entered the house through a door that was unlocked. Less than 30 seconds later, he crossed paths with Evelyn Myroth in a hallway. She was startled. He shot her in the head once. She became unconscious and fell to the floor. She was at death's doorstep. Jason went with Daniel Meredith to a store, missing the act that robbed him of a mother by only seconds or minutes. Evelyn's nephew David was killed with a shot to the right side of his head. The bullet passed through his head and penetrated a pillowcase, but not the pillow. Bloody footprints were later found around the crib. Segments of David's brain were found in the bathtub. It was in the bathtub because Chase took David in there, dangled him over the tub, and cut open a section of the back of his skull with a knife. Given the patterns of Chase's murders, it was assumed that this was done to make it easier for him to drink David's blood. Knife wounds were made to David's anus. Chase took his body to his apartment, and it was there where David's head was decapitated. Evelyn's son Vernon was at school, and her daughter Lori lived with her father, so they were both spared the massacre that would decimate their family. Richard was interrupted. Daniel Meredith and Jason returned home. Richard Chase was there to meet them in the living room. He shot Daniel Meredith in the head. The bullet plowed through his brain and landed in the wall behind him. Chase turned to Jason. He shot him in the back of his neck. He followed up with a shot to his head. Though Meredith was likely dead at this point, Chase shot him in the head once more. The arrival of Daniel Meredith and Jason Myroth had been an obstacle David Chase had to displace before he got his chance to desecrate the body of Evelyn Myroth. Now time and solitude gave him free reign. He dragged her from the hallway into the bathroom. He removed all her clothing. He removed some of his own clothing. His socks, which had been drenched in blood, were left at the scene. Before he mutilated her, he had sex with her dead body by draping her over the bathtub. She was then pulled to her bedroom. This was where he did all the cutting. The following details are transcribed from a report on the mutilation of Evelyn Myroth. Cross-shaped cut to abdomen, 9-inch horizontal, 5-inch vertical. Some edges smooth, some show jagged sawing, not a wild slash. Liver cut four times. Connecting tissue for membranes holding small intestines were cut. Several loops of small intestines lay outside wound, but small intestine not cut. Stomach was partially pulled out of wound. Membranes behind the intestines was cut, yet intestines not cut. Cut through anus, up into rectum, two cuts in rectal wall, six puncture marks uterus, knife thrust back and forth in wound. Note, all above wounds very close to time of death, did not contribute to death. Eight cuts to neck, superficial, clearly post-mortem, ranging from five-eighths inch 
to two and one half inch stab to back of front of neck. Clearly post-mortem. Right eye, pulled out of socket. Eyelids inverted. Incision around inner aspect of eyelid. Not a wild hacking. Muscles holding eye all disrupted. Optical nerve to back of eye intact. Chase sodomized Evelyn with a knife with force and aggression. He had been unable to perform sexually with women under normal circumstances, but necrophilia with a knife provided him with a satisfaction he sought. Sperm was found within her rectum. Her boyfriend was asked about his and Evelyn's sexual practices. He said they never engaged in sodomy. They hadn't had sex at all since the previous Monday. Six-year-old Tracy Grandgard showed up at the Maroth residence's front door. Jason was expected, as he had been invited by her family to go on a day trip. Richard Chase chose not to answer the door. When he heard the knock of the door, he took baby David and left. Some neighbor friends entered the Myroth residence when others called and received no answer. Nancy Turner discovered the butchered body of Evelyn Myroth. The police were contacted. The sight of Evelyn Myroth's dismembered body was so horrific that even hard-boiled police detectives were shaken. The next day, Chase bought a copy of the Sacramento Bee and kept the articles about what he had wrought. The citizens of the nearby residential districts were deeply unsettled. Those who owned guns kept them close while at home. Many bought extra ammunition. Many people who didn't own guns bought them. They were all on edge. The only description police had of the suspect was that he was a Caucasian male with long hair and a disheveled appearance. They also figured out that he lived close to the crime scenes. The problem was there were lots of people in the Sacramento area who fit that description. Police were canvassing neighborhoods and interviewing anybody who might have information about the crime and the perpetrator. Meanwhile, Richard Chase was hard at work in his squalid apartment, mutilating the body of David Ferreira. He cut off his head and drank the blood. He ate a few pieces of his brain. The apartment looked like a butcher shop. There was blood everywhere. He hadn't allowed any guests in a long time. When his mother or father delivered groceries to him, they had to hand them to him through a crack in the door. Those who visited his apartment later recalled a heavy stench of putrefaction. Almost every square inch of the apartment had been stained with blood. The police formulated an action plan to find the suspect. They combed the entire district, even searching by air. The morning of the 28th, Richard's father called from the pantry market, asking him if he needed anything. Richard said he didn't. His father later noted that he sounded normal, but of course, that couldn't have been further from the truth. A breakthrough emerged in the case. Nancy Holder reported her disturbing encounter with Richard Chase in the parking lot of the pantry market. Her description matched those given by other witnesses. Records of Richard Chase's arrests and psychiatric care were explored. Police went to his apartment building. They spoke with the building's manager. She described him as very strange. She told them he wouldn't answer his door. She mentioned that he only spoke to his mother through a crack in the door. The officers knocked on the door, but there was no answer. They couldn't hear anything from within the apartment. His vehicle was in the parking lot, so they knew he was likely home. 
One of the officers used the telephone in the manager's apartment to call Chase. He answered, saying hello. They asked if it was Richard, and he said he was. The officer said he knew him and identified as Bill. Chase hung up. Some officers occupied an empty apartment next to Chase's. They listened to the wall and heard movement in Chase's unit. When one of the officers made a call to Lieutenant Biondi, the manager screamed, saying, Your partners need help. Some officers raced down the stairs and found Richard, Trent, and Chase in custody. Chase had assumed the officers had left and walked casually out of his apartment. He managed to escape the building and ran down the sidewalk leading to Watt Avenue. To quote Detective Baker, I jumped out of the doorway, ordered him to stop. I had my gun drawn. The subject turned, looked at me, and he was carrying a large cardboard box containing bloody rags and papers, brain matter in an envelope, and David Ferreira's diaper pin. At the time, he threw the box at me. I had a flashlight in my hand. I was able to deflect the box, and as I deflected it downward, the subject charged me. He tried to run over me, and I hit him. He flew in the air, and I came down on top of him. Officer Irie caught up with him and assisted Baker. Irie decided before they caught him that if the baby were still alive, he would kill Chase. Irie described what had happened when Chase decided to make a run for it. At the time, he's looking back over his shoulder as I'm chasing him. He gets down here to apartment 14 next door where Detective Baker was. Ken knocked him down, and then we jumped on him, wrestled around with him. His gun was in a holster underneath the jacket on his chest. I pulled my service revolver out and stuck it in his ear. I told him to quit fighting or I was going to blow his brains out. Well, he didn't quit fighting, and that's when I found out I'm not like him. Even though I believed it would have been a good shooting, I couldn't kill him because the average person, cops included, are not like these people. He's a cold-blooded killer, and we aren't. Detective Baker pistol-whipped Chase in the head, which was enough to temporarily disable him. They took David Chase into custody. After he was back on his feet, one of the first things Chase said was, Let me go, I've done nothing wrong. Another source quoted him as saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Who said I did anything wrong? Did that lady hear me? He kept trying to get access to his back pocket at least three times. He was carrying Daniel Meredith's wallet. While he was in back of the police cruiser en route to the station, he said, My apartment is a lot cleaner, isn't it? All I did in my apartment is kill a few dogs. Investigators entered David Chase's apartment to examine the scene he left behind. The first two things they noticed were the stench of putrefaction and that blood covered every surface. They went to the bedroom. There was a bloody plate on the bed. Some men's blood-stained clothing was also lying on the bed. They also spotted some brain particles on the bed. These were determined to have been extracted from David Ferreira's head. A blood-stained hatchet was discovered in the kitchen. A bloodied machete was seen in a bedroom drawer. There was a large blood stain on the middle of the kitchen floor. In the freezer, there was a half-gallon container of animal organ meat, kidneys, livers, and hearts. There was feces on the bedroom floor. The walls of the bedroom were decorated with pictures of the internal organs of humans. An investigator was quoted about the other discoveries made at the scene. 
Reading material in the apartment included a book on totalitarianism, a book entitled Psychic People, gun magazines, and psychology magazines. There were newspaper articles on violent deaths and materials on Old West outlaws, also defendants' high school yearbooks. There was blood all over the bathroom. Investigators commented on their findings from the bathroom. Entering the bathroom area, blood stains were noted on the door leading to the bathroom and the floor and walls. In the bathtub and tile around the bathtub, blood stains were noted. Hair was seen in the bathtub and in the soap dish. In the medicine cabinet, a brown bag was observed. In opening the bag, hair was observed. Also in the cabinet was a plastic-type glass that had blood stains inside. The Crest toothpaste containers had blood stains on them. Chase was brought in for questioning. An officer reflects on Chase's demeanor. Chase was different than any other suspect I had interviewed or interrogated. Usually a suspect will display worry, defiance, hostility, or a certain type of smugness about them. Chase just sat there with a flat demeanor, acting like we were not even in the room. He had been in plenty of sessions with psychiatric personnel and questioned by officers during prior arrests. So sitting in a room with someone questioning him was nothing new. Irie and I tried everything we knew to get him to open up. We did the overwhelming evidence talk, the we know you did it, but why speech, and the good cop, bad cop, where I yelled at him and Irie spoke to him as a friend. He did talk to us, but it was only to answer what questions he wanted to answer. Many questions just simply drew a stare and silence. We sat there not saying a thing, hoping that it would make him uncomfortable and he would speak to break the silence. Nothing. We were probably more uncomfortable than he was. We asked Lieutenant Biondi to send in the experienced homicide interviewers because we didn't think we were doing a good enough job. He assured us that we did just fine but did send in another team of investigators. Eventually, they too never received any useful information or admission from Chase. Chase denied involvement in the murders, admitting only to the slaughter of dogs. The officers utilized every interrogation technique in the book to get a confession, to no avail. The officers got a glimpse of Chase's strange behavior. When an officer told him to remove his shoulder holster, Chase said, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel comfortable. Can't I just hang on to it? When he was presented with evidence linking him to the murders, he said he was being framed by the Italians. They asked him if he ate the flesh of his victims and drank their blood. His response, You're crazy. I haven't. I'm not mixed up in anything like that. They asked him if he thought it was wrong to eat people. He said, The Nazis ate a lot. His way of denying his involvement in the murders consisted of saying, My parents didn't bring me up that way. I wouldn't do anything like that. You have the wrong guy. It wasn't me. No shit. I didn't do it. He insisted it was another man, and he had a description at the ready. A blonde guy who had on an orange coat, walking towards Country Club Center. He went on to say, Somebody's been coming in and out of my apartment. Richard Chase became a target Wilson jail. He was sequestered alone for his safety. Inmates threw cups full of urine at him. They threw feces at him. 
They told the corrections officers that if he were released into general population, they would kill him. They reported that they were unable to sleep because of what they knew about Chase's crimes. Sunday morning, Richard Chase was interviewed by psychiatrists. He was tense and reluctant to share. He told them trivial facts about his time in high school. They said he was vague about whether he had a history of mental illness. A doctor, True, asked him what he had on his mind. Chase was not forthcoming. True rephrased his question. He asked him to describe what was on the screen of his mind, as if he were watching his thoughts on a television. Chase said, an exploding 747 jetliner. He also said he saw lights in the sky that he felt might be UFOs from Mars. He went on about being Jewish and that he was harassed by Italians who beat him up because of his ethnic identity. Chase was not Jewish and was not assaulted by groups of Italians. He was convinced that the food given to him in jail was being poisoned. He ordered his public defender to have his food tested. It was, and the results came back negative. Before David Chase became infamous for the murders of human beings, he acquired the nickname Dracula because of his propensity for biting the heads off birds, eating them raw, and drinking the blood. With the media focus on his murders came a new moniker, the Vampire. David Chase was charged with six counts of murder. David Ferreira's body was the last to be autopsied. The following facts are quoted from the autopsy report. Gunshot wound to right side of head, passing through brain, exiting left side of head, several stab and incised wounds to the rear of the skull, knocking holes in the rear of the skull, the largest two and one half inches long, cutting from the scrotum through the rectal area up to the sacrum, basically cutting through the entire cleft of the buttocks, gaping wound to the chest and abdomen, ribs three through 10 being broken, decapitation, cutting through the second cervical vertebrae. Richard Chase's lawyer had his mental health evaluated in hopes that he could have him acquitted on the basis of an insanity plea. They found that while his behavior and statements could be very strange, he was aware of his actions and how they would be perceived as immoral by mainstream society and illegal in the eyes of the authorities. Dr. Theodore Odland gave this statement after evaluating Richard Chase. In the sexual area, his sex education was a course in psychology at American River College. He began masturbation in the seventh or eighth grade and doesn't like it because it can cause sickness and weakness. He has abstained for the past several months, as he feels it may be contributing to his present weakness. He has had limited heterosexual experience with intercourse and oral sex. He doesn't much care for it, as, quote, it's not worth it, I guess, unquote. He also told the doctor about his erectile dysfunction. He denied engaging in bestiality or homosexuality. When asked about the murders, he said he didn't remember them. After being probed about them, he said they were just... It could have been someone else. I don't remember who they were, because I was sick, poisoned by iodine or mercury. I can't stand it. I can't get away from it. He said that the killings occurred over a couple of weeks and that knives and guns were used. 
He went on to say, I don't really remember anything about it. I was trying to get free of Poison Place and go live with my grandmother's relatives. The car had broken down and I had no money, so I walked in someone's house and killed them. He admitted to having killed a pet cat. He said that at the time he was outraged because he saw a story about a cat receiving medical attention on television. He believed the quality of the care was superior than the kind he was receiving. He drank the cat's blood. This incident marked the first time he killed animals. Dr. Audland elaborates. He rambled on about putting a cup by the bullet holes in the animals to catch the blood. He saw on television and read in a book that poisons will clot the blood and make it disappear. Regarding the blood drinking not helping, he said, I couldn't cope with the world anymore because every time I tried to get up and act like a human being, I couldn't because of the weakness. I went on welfare and got in Beverly Manor. So now I've got a trial pending, I guess. On the subject of his mental health issues, Chase said, Mental disease makes me get dizzy and lose my sense of reality over some kind. It puts me to sleep, kinda. Dr. Audlin went on to say, He was mentally ill when he killed the people, and when asked specifically about carrying the baby's body, he said, Some kind of blackout, I guess. Audlin asked him how he felt about having committed homicide. Chase said, It was not fair to kill those people. I could have tried medical places out of town, but I went to a lot of places and couldn't find any help. It was Dr. Audlin's diagnostic opinion that though Chase was schizophrenic, as previously diagnosed, he was nevertheless responsible for his actions. He made this conclusive statement. He was oriented in all three spheres and showed no gross memory loss, except for the killings and my opinion is that this does not represent organic brain damage. His affect was flat, and his associations were frequently loose. His affect was at times inappropriate to the thought content. He described a vast persecutory delusionary system, which is organized and of long duration and involves systematic poisoning of him. He has many somatic delusions, including my heart stopped beating, I do not have a heart, my pulmonary artery has been stolen, my blood is not circulating, and poisoning is causing my stomach to grow backward. My opinion is that Richard was seeking relief from intolerable distress associated with his belief that he was being poisoned to death, and that his belief was due to a severe chronic mental disorder. He believed that drinking blood was a possible solution to save him from certain death. He understood that he was killing people and that it was wrong to kill people. Another physician, Alfred French, interviewed Richard Chase five times. He gave a statement of his own in court. Your Honor, pursuant to your appointment of June 13, 1978, I interviewed Mr. Chase at the Sacramento County Jail on June 16th, June 20th, June 26th, July 6th, and July 20th, 1978. These interviews varied in length from 30 minutes, one interview, to one hour and 15 minutes, one interview. The other three interviews were approximately 45 minutes in length. Question addressed and opinion. Was Richard Chase sane at the time of the commission of the offense for which he is charged? 
Mr. Chase has not discussed with me the events in question. While I have repeatedly asked him about the events in question on different occasions, he has repeatedly stated that he does not remember about them, although he stated in one case that I didn't kill anybody, just a few people. My opinion is, therefore, based on indirect evidence, which I will present in detail below. On the basis of my five interviews and a careful review of the extensive written records and tape-recorded conversations, it is my opinion that the information available to me permits only one conclusion. Mr. Chase was sane at the time of the offenses, that he was capable of knowing and understanding the nature and quality of his acts, and that he was capable of knowing and understanding that his acts were wrong. Basis for the opinion. The major basis for my opinion are as follows. Number one, absence of any evidence whatsoever in my interviews that this man is a schizophrenic. Number two, a statement by Mr. Chase that he did in fact kill some people. Number three, a distinct change in Mr. Chase's manner as we approached discussion of the sensitive areas. At this point, he consistently became cautious, withdrawn, evasive, and he refused to discuss matters. Number four, clear evidence that Mr. Chase has a well-developed sense of right and wrong with respect to how he himself should be treated. Specifically, he has a clear sense he should have an angiogram, that he should be moved to a hospital, that he should have been given blood or blood products, that his car should be cared for, etc. Number five, clear evidence that Mr. Chase performed murders precisely because he was aware of the nature and quality of his acts, i.e., that destruction of these lives would make it possible for him to obtain blood and, apparently, other sources of gratification. To take the other side of the question, I find no evidence in the records or in my own interviews that Mr. Chase has been, at any time, incapable of knowing or understanding the nature and quality of his acts or incapable of knowing or understanding that his acts were wrong. Some more findings presented by Dr. French. As to abnormal behaviors while being interviewed, Chase had none. French said his manner of speech was, quote, is slow and cautious with a soft voice. Chase's intellectual functioning was deemed normal by French as he, quote, expressed himself in sentences of normal length and complexity with no apparent difficulty, and I had no impression that this man is mentally retarded, unquote. His judgment was not impaired either. Quote, a number of hypothetical problem situations were presented. Mr. Chase responded to these hypothetical problems in what I considered to be a normal manner, demonstrating a variety of problem-solving maneuvers, unquote. He gave his account of Richard Chase's yearning for blood. Mr. Chase discussed his concern about his health and his attempt to repair his body through the ingestion of blood. This he attempted to do by ingesting the blood of rabbits and dogs. However, he did not obtain the desired results of improved health and attributed this failure to diseased animals. With respect to the entire matter, Mr. Chase at one point commented that it was a mistake and that he should have simply gone directly to a blood bank. Dr. French reversed the earlier diagnosis of schizophrenia. He pointed out that Chase didn't meet the criteria for the diagnosis, 
citing the description in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM. Dr. French wrote, In my opinion, the cardinal finding of schizophrenia, namely the involuntary and uncontrollable disruption of the normal flow of thought process, is nowhere evident in this case. Furthermore, Mr. Chase repeatedly said to me, and to, and to one other interviewer, specifically denied psychotic symptomatology. He gave his summary of his evaluation of Richard Chase. Of particular importance in this case is the evidence that Mr. Chase is in conflict with society, grossly selfish and callous, and apparently unable to feel guilt. Furthermore, he clearly tends to blame others and does his best to offer plausible rationalizations for his behavior. In my opinion, the behaviors in question resulted from the simultaneous presence of a delusional system and gross, callous selfishness. Somatic delusions in themselves are by no means uncommon. Antisocial personality pattern is quite common. In this case, we are dealing with simultaneous presence of both conditions. An aside, Chase remarked about the real reason he killed baby David Ferreira. Cause I needed something to eat. The Richard Chase case went to trial. He didn't stand a chance, not with all the witness testimony and DNA evidence. His attorney couldn't even procure an insanity plea. Chief District Attorney Ronald Tochterman made this statement to the jury. These murders were not ordinary or common. They betrayed a depravity that is so great that the level of reprehensibility manifested is difficult to imagine, almost beyond human conception or imagination. A sentence of death was decided on. Chase took the stand to beg for mercy, saying the following, I beg for another chance to survive in the hope to make compensation for the families. I was a good person, although weak in heart and mind. Nobody was convinced that his contrition was genuine. He was sentenced to death. Richard Chase's family was devastated by the verdict as well. Though they understood the reasoning behind it, his father gave this statement to the Sacramento Bee. Society will kill my son. I think I've known that from the start. And maybe it's right. I don't know. There isn't a day goes by that I don't think about those people he killed. I've cried a lot over the past year. I don't know whether it's been more for those people than for Rick. Richard Sr. wept throughout the interview. Frequently, the relatives of criminals like Richard Chase become victims in their own right. Richard Chase was sentenced to be executed in a gas chamber. He served his prison sentence in San Quentin Penitentiary. He was isolated from the general population of the prison on death row. He committed suicide by taking an overdose of a medication called Sinequan, which is taken to treat depression. This practice is known in prison culture as cheeking. He would have been murdered if set loose in general population. That's how they treat human monsters in prison. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.